Hello and welcome to episode 138 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science. My name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me as per is Ben Marshall. And in this episode, we have got a Patreon episode. So this is a topic selected by our Patreon, Richard Southworth, who, funnily enough, I actually saw just last weekend at a conference and I had dinner with Richard, which was very nice. Oh. Uh, yeah. So shouts to Richard. And um, yeah, Richard selected an episode about anole evolution, which is an ever evolving area of reptile science. Ever evolving. Mm-hmm. Ever evolving. Well done. Yeah. Yes. Five points. <laughs> Completely unintentional. <laughs> no, it could be due to the fact I've read the word evolving about 50,000 times in the last few hours. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like we've had some papers on anole sort of evolution or like evolution adjacent sort of things before because it, they're such a good oh, i hate the t- i hate the term sort of model species but that's sort of what it is C- case study i suppose might be better um because they've got all these wonderful instances of convergent evolution you've got them on all these different islands and different island systems you've got them on the mainland away from the islands sort of caribbean and central and south american sort of distributed actually and a bit of north america too but they just sort of inhabit this wonderful area that has all these sort of natural experiment sort of situations going on with hurricanes pushing them off islands, then recolonizing them. There's lots of different species, so it all gets mixed and they all have different sort of solutions. Yeah, wonderful case study to look at. And thankfully, yep. there's been plenty of papers on them as well. So it makes our job slightly easier as well. Yeah, it does. I mean, like you say, they're very speciose too. There's something like 440 species of anole so um yes if you don't accept that split of the genus or whatever oh is that without the split of the genus i assume so because that's a huge number it is a high number yeah 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 so but there's a lot there's a lot we can say that yeah definitely let's introduce this paper that we've got about anole evolution it's by prates angelella rodriguez melo sampao queros bell and it was published in 2021, Evolutionary Drivers of Sexual Signal Variation in Amazon Slender Annals, published in Evolution. So this is the slender anal. Of all the 400-something species, we're talking about the slender anal. Scientific name of this species is Anolis fusco auratus. Fusco auratus. Quite a cool name, actually. Very descriptive. Fusco, fusco means dark from the Latin fuscus. And auratus comes from the Latin root aurat, which means gold or golden, and is consequently used to designate species that are sort of golden coloured. So it sort of means dark gold, which quite aptly describes the base colour of this anole, actually. It is sort of a dark golden colour. And in yeah. classic anole fashion, they have what's called a dewlap, which is this flap of skin in the males, which can be extended out from beneath the chin. I think it does appear on the, the females, but it's just like tiny less by comparison yeah so it's, yes. it's like the it's sort of there just not there <laughs> yeah I mean? yeah it's mostly the males that flash it around although perhaps the females use it too but it's a flap of skin and it, it has sort of like it looks like there's a little stick in there that sort of pops out mm. and it, it comes out beneath the chin and they use this dewlap uh, these anole lizards to communicate with each other so while they inflate their dewlap they just sort of like poke it out and it forms this 
sometimes quite brightly coloured flap. They use that in conjunction with wobbling their heads around and sort of jigging about. And it's thought that this is sexy and territorial to other animals. The exact functions aren't like completely understood. It probably has a range of functions, uh, especially given how many species there are. It probably does slightly different things. But the general consensus is that they're using this dewlap as a means of flashing it to other animals and saying hey this is my territory or hey look at me i've got a nice dewlap i'd be a nice animal to meet with yeah exactly it comes from that sort of assumption that it's wrapped up in some sort of like sexual selection somewhere yeah how yeah. strong that is whether it's consistent between species yeah obviously a lot more complexity there but that's the idea yeah, and this particular anole species, the slender anole, it's found across South America in primary and secondary rainforests, so it's tolerant of a bit of human disturbance, and it's quite often the most common anole where it occurs. They tend to be pretty easy to find, and one of the things which is interesting about this particular species is that they have a massive wide range, and across their range they can have different colour of dewlap. The dewlap can either be pink, grey, or yellow. And that is kind of the curiosity that led to this study taking place. The authors noticed or had noticed that this slender anole could come in three different colorways, one with pink, one with gray, one with yellow dewlap. And they wanted to find out why. Why is it the case that these anoles, despite being just one species, have got these three differently colored dewlaps? And yes. they kind of had three sort of ideas that they wanted to test behind why this might be the case and i think the most sensible thing for us to do would be to kind of go through them in turn and sort of yeah describe whether they did actually explain this variation before we jump on that it's like why would you care that they have different colors and it's because i it's... personally don't care no i do <laughs> let, let them do what they want i don't care let them <laughs> yeah, bum around in the forest now the idea is why this is sort of intriguing is you've got two different sort of setups you've got polymorphism where you've got different colors of animal existing in the same space okay you know different ones maybe using different like little sub niches or something and you've got polytypism or a sort of polytypic variation where you have different colors in different locations but the idea is if this is a color trait so tied to sexual selection and sort of their ability to reproduce you would expect it to impact evolution Right, Because if they're assortively mating with ones of a certain colour or a certain different colour dewlap, you're going to expect things to sort of diverge. And I think we've talked about a similar sort of instance with frog coloration before. That's why it's interesting, is, is we've got one species with this sort of, well, polymorphism or polytypism, um, depending on what they find and what they say, but just that existing and persisting is it leading to evolution? Is it not leading to... Well, is it leading to selection and separation or is it not? Like, there can be isolation prompted by different colours. Yeah, the frog you're talking about was the strawberry dart frog, wasn't it? I, that we sounds that right, paper. yeah. Because they had blue ones and red ones. Yes. And the blue ones and red ones co-occurred. They were in the same place at the same time. So that was like what you're describing polymorphism. as... Polymorphism, um, yep. Polymorphism. Multiple colour varieties in one place and... What you said, assortative mating, that's where the red ones were only really mating with the red ones and the blue ones were only mating with the blue ones predominantly. There was the odd exception, but for, yeah, by I mean, and large... Over time, you'd expect that to separate off into two separate... Distinct. ...species, potentially. Yes. Yeah, so they had three kind of ideas about what might cause the variation in the dewlaps. 
The first was evolutionary divergence. So if populations that have a dewlap, particular dewlap color are more closely related to each other than populations with differently colored dewlaps, what you're describing, Ben, where it's kind of the beginning of new species forming might yeah. be the case. This kind of genetic divergence, what they refer to as um, incipient speciation, which just means, oh my God, they're starting to become new species. And if you waited a few million years, you'd probably have new species. And so if that was the case, you'd expect to see that they were genetically distinct based on their color form. And um, in short, no, they didn't find that out to be the case. They did a big family tree study of the uh, slender animal and the different colors were popping up all over it. There's really no like firm genetic basis for the difference in color. Yeah, exactly. They had, what was it, six different like groupings of these animals because they, you know, they're widely distributed across South America and these distinct groups genetically had all the different dewlap colors in them. Like there was just, yeah. there was nothing matching up. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. So if you don't already realize this, color is not a good way of distinguishing species. In this one, yeah, in this group. Well, by and large, yeah, for moths, it's amazing. But for reptiles, it tends to be a little bit fraught. Okay, so the second reason they thought it could be the case that the dewlap colours that the animals present actually correspond to something about the habitat in which they find themselves. So it could be that it was a climatic thing. It could be that it was uh, something to do with the topography, like maybe animals at higher elevation develop different coloured dewlaps. They kind of approached this with the idea that all of these factors might affect the plants that were surrounding the animals and like think about an animal that's living in a forest depending on the vegetation particular to that forest it might be that different amounts of light get through they might be mm-hmm. living in lighter or darker habitats and obviously this is what believed to be a sexual signal and so they want it to be seen and if it's the case that the vegetation is different in different places maybe certain colors of dewlap are more noticeable to other animals in those particular environments or sort of counterpoint it's too noticeable oh and like dangerous. okay you're in an environment where it's sort of so it's yeah it's very good at being noticed by whoever you're trying to communicate with but it's also making you almost too noticeable to something that might want to consume you so you know there are sort of additional trade-offs and that's why they just grabbed a very wide suite of climatic and um, sort of topographical variables and sort of smashed them all down into something more interpretable. <laughs> Basically, a bunch of stats was done. We'll ignore the stats A bunch of stats. Yeah, that's all we need to know. But that's the point, is that they try to capture quite broad-scale stuff, macro-scale stuff, climatic-scale stuff, not microhabitat stuff. Because what they do mention in the paper is that these animals do tend to live in very similar microhabitats, regardless of where they are in the range. So they're expecting that not to have as bigger impact, which, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're looking at variation in dewlaps over a broader scale, over a species distribution. So that does sort of make sense, doesn't it? Yeah. And they're, for anyone wondering, these annals, Ben's mentioned that they do the same thing more or less throughout their range, which is very broad. And what they tend to do is forage for bugs on low vines, small twigs in the understory and at the base of tree trunks. So they're not like a canopy species. They mm-hmm. tend to be a little bit lower down on the trees and vegetation and they sort of just jog around on the vines and twigs eating bugs. So they do that wherever you find them. And 
What they actually found was that there was no association between the dewlap colour and variations in the climate or the topography or the vegetation across their range. So the different colours actually aren't an adaptation to the habitat they find themselves in, as far as they could tell. Right. And backing up the point about microhabitat not making a difference is you had the same dewlap colour at a site. So I think they had something like 32 different sites that they had dewlap colour data for. And what you'd find is if you went to a site, all the animals at that site would have the same colour dewlap. But you could go, you know, I think the closest was like 10 kilometres away, and you'd find a group of animals that had all the same colour dewlap, but it would be different from your first site. So you'd have some that, if you turned up and found one that had yellow dewlaps, every other one you'd find would have yellow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're all sort of mixed geographically. That's something that we also haven't mentioned. There's no like clustering of these dewlap colors yet okay you go 10 kilometers down the road and you find some of a different color but you can go 100 kilometers down the road and you could find some that had the same color as the one you saw originally so it's Mm -hmm. it's a complete mix there's no clear geographic separation they're all occurring everywhere the map where they have all the different colors plotted as dots for each population is just like yeah it's just a there's seemingly no relationship. It's just random splops of colour on weird. the map. So, you know, you, you mentioned the genetic thing. The genetic clustering does follow a sort of clustering. Like there are geographically more similar areas and less similar areas. But this is the whole thing. The genetics is completely mismatched with the dewlap colour. But yeah. it's interesting that there are some sort of genetic structure going on with distance. Like there are geographic clusters genetically. And you'd expect to see that because the Absolutely, large yeah. area in which they inhabit isn't entirely good habitat. There's areas of like much drier habitat, which they yeah. don't particularly like. They prefer forests. So, yeah, where you see gaps, you know, it's, I'm sure that they don't go into that much detail with this. Well, certainly we don't need to. But, yeah, there seems, like you say, to be geographic variation in their genetics, as you'd expect, because this isn't just one big intermixed population anymore. They are now separated by areas of unsuitable habitat. So we've got no evidence of a genetic basis for this variation in colour. We've also got no evidence for it to be an adaptation locally to the climate, topography or vegetation. The third thing they wanted to test was to look at whether or not the other lizards that they were found nearby would have an impact. So the slender animal occurs with at least 11 other animal species across their distribution in these lowland South American rainforests. So this is an area busy with other animal species. And it could be the case that differently coloured dewlaps, which remember are used to signal territory and mating interest, can change evolutionarily in response to the colour of other animal dewlaps in the area and actually when they looked at this this was the only one with compelling evidence wasn't it because Mm -hmm. although it didn't explain the variation in where the pink ones were they did manage to explain the variation in yellow and grey dewlaps so in places with animals with brightly coloured yellowish coloured dewlaps other species other than the slender animal the slender animals were less likely to have yellow dewlaps and similarly, where there were other lizards with dark dewlaps, the grey dewlap was less likely to be present. So they suggest that, you know, it's called the slender animal, right? Like this animal is quite small. It's skinny and weak compared to the other animals. <laughs> and they just straight up probably can't compete with bigger animals. So in areas where they 
are found where there are other bigger anoles with similarly coloured dewlaps, they evolved to have differently coloured dewlaps. And the authors of this paper think it's likely because if they have the same coloured dewlap as a bigger species of anole, the other bigger anole is going to notice they had the same dewlap, see it as competition and just come in and wreck shop. You don't want to be a little lizard with the same coloured dewlap as a big lizard because that big lizard is going to see you as a competitor and it's going to take you out. Yeah. So it is really looking like a sort of reaction to the local sympatric lizard species of similar size yeah. and so other anoles and what was it, Draco? Some Draco lizards. Yeah, sort some of Draco lizards that were similar were they sort Draco of small, lizards? slender and shaped to anoles. Are they Dracos, proper Dracos? Because isn't that just South Draconura? Draconura, yes. Yeah. Because I think Dracos are Southeast Asia. They definitely are, yes. <laughs> yeah, so the dewlap colour of slender anoles not explained by genetic climate or habitat, but instead explained by avoiding territorial disputes with more dangerous lizards. So you can kind of think of slender anoles as the evolutionary cowards of the understory. Well, hmm. I sp- yeah, okay, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> seems Who a bit harsh. This is what's interesting, isn't it? Is You've got this case of a polytypic confirmed to be polytypic not polymorphic because they're not existing in the same site with different colors so polytypic species sharing space with a lot of other species many of which are not variable in the same way so it's interesting that they have sort of gone this route to fit in i guess to not get <laughs> not get out to not get smashed cause, up cause trouble it is interesting they bring up like some extra little things in the discussion that i think are kind of cool like they bring up diet they sort of suggest is not a source of colour variation for dewlaps because other species tests have shown that basically animals are perfectly capable of making these colours. They synthesise the colours required for their dewlaps as opposed to taking it directly from food sources. Like supplementation of colour-rich foods don't seem to help them much. What The bit that I found interesting flamingos. and confusing was a little bit that they discussed after the diet stuff where they showed that previous studies on different species of animal, to be fair, have shown that dewlap coloration is hereditary. So, that would suggest that this is not like a plastic trait that can just sort of pop up. It has some genetic basis. However, the genetic stuff from this study would suggest that it is more plastic, or it's somewhere genetically that's very easy to turn off and on presumably yeah and it's i don't know there's an interesting thing to dig into there is like how many generations does it take for this to switch from one dewlap color to another dewlap color if needed because you've got to presume it's relatively reactive to be so like tightly assorted Mm. in association with these other species appearing around so yeah but not strongly assorted enough to undermine or to produce like genetically distinct lineages following those color variations it feels like a really weird like middle ground yeah it makes you wonder how many uh across the course of evolutionary history how many millions of small animals have had to be smashed up by bigger lizards to this <laughs> well yeah it's so many <laughs> yeah how many times have they switched dewlap color in us in a subpopulation or something like how much pressure does it take for them to change? Yeah, well, we've had this before, like when we talked about the nose horns of vipers and stuff, like that's a trait which kind of comes and goes and ebbs and flows that's in time, tr- yeah. depending on cause. So yeah, why should dewlaps be any different, I suppose? Yeah, 
All right. Well, uh, there we go. The dewlaps of Anolis lizards, specifically the slender anol, Anolis fusco auratus. Great topic selection by Richard. So let's move on, shall we, to our species of the bi week. And we've got a species this week, which is pretty cool. I think you'll agree. And the paper is by Zhang, Shi, Li, Yan, Wang, Ding, Du, and Plenkovich, Moraj, and Zhang, and Shi. And it's entitled Exploring Cryptic Biodiversity in a World Heritage Site. A new pit viper from Zhuzhaigu Abba, Sichuan, China. Zookies, this was published in. So, yeah, Sichuan, China, it's like southwestern China. We're in uh, the aforementioned nature reserve, Zhuzhaigu National Nature Reserve. And as the title suggests, this is a world heritage site. It's part of the collective heritage of our earth. And it lies in the kind of transition zone from the eastern edge of the Tibet Plateau, plateau to the Sichuan Basin. So, it's kind of like on the border between Tibetan Plateau and China. And uh, yeah. It's a pretty cool place. If you're interested in mammals, you can go there and see this really big charismatic animal you might have heard of called Giant Panda. They're sort of these what? big black and white comedy characters. Oh. Yeah, they're pretty funny. <laughs> but also, if you want to see something cool, it turns out there's a new pit viper from there. Yeah, it's in the genus Gloideus, which are these kind of like small-bodied venomous snakes from Asia. And prior to this, there were 23 species. This will be number 24. And yeah, they went to this site, found some vipers. They weren't sure what they were. Did some molecular analysis, some morphological analysis. And uh, yeah, turns out warrants being described as a brand new species. And what have they called it, Ben? Lateralis. So Gloideus lateralis. And rather wonderfully, lateralis actually describes what the species looks like. And it's a distinct, it's one of the ways you can tell them apart from species that look very similar and they've got this beautiful unbroken lateral line along the side of them so other species have this sort of pale line but it tends to be split up on a scale by scale sort of step these guys have it much more continuously yeah it actually looks to me like um it's actually the edge of the ventral scale which is colorful they've got like a brown edge to the ventral yes. scale which is kind of cool so if you turn them upside down it's pretty noticeable where the belly scales meet the dorsal scales which are the smaller scales on the side of the body there's this really nice brown line and um yeah it's a really beautiful snake to me it's quite chunky but not extremely chunky with uh you know most pit vipers you see have got like a big fat off head right this one's got quite a small head and i know for a viper yeah yeah some of the species in this group eat like moths and stuff so whether or not that's the case for this probably not i think that's quite unusual and that that species actually is on the tibetan plateau and it exists at quite high altitude i think moths are probably quite a last resort for uh, snake evolution as a food <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> they strike me as a quite tricky <laughs> tricky thing to eat and yeah tricky to catch tricky to eat and like realistically you've got mostly wings there which can't be that nutritious yeah and like dust you know like it's yeah, mostly dust, dust. yeah unappetizing but yeah the fact that these things have got quite a small head you know maybe they're eating smaller prey don't know i don't think anyone knows but they've got a very beautiful pattern on their um backs as well which is to me a little bit sort of jungle carpet python-esque although um they've mm -hmm. got far fewer scales much larger scales so it's a little bit you know you can actually very clearly see that each scale is a different color which is kind of cool like uh mosaic yeah yeah, it is like a yeah. mosaic, a jungly mosaic. How big do they get? They look small. How big do they get? 
440mm SVL is the hollow type. Quite a sizable. With an extra 60 Viper. for tail length. Okay, so, so yeah. 500 half all a meter. Half a meter. And uh, yeah, they're just nice little Vipers. I was surprised to see that it was a Pit Viper just based on the pictures alone because it looks quite a lot like the. Uh, Eurasian Viper that we have in the UK, the Adder, it has you know, that, in terms of its coloration. Yeah, similar coloration. It's got that incredible golden orange eye going for it too. It does have true Viper vibes. Yeah. Hmm. And the habitat is forested. It seems to quite like sort of this a little bit of hilly, rocky, foresty sort of areas in this national park and yeah millions of tourists go there every year it's a wonder that no one had sort of noticed them before but uh, well i'm sure they had it's just <laughs> treated as the same species right of course yeah i shouldn't say that of course people have noticed it local people have probably known about it for generations but yeah no one no one had thought to describe it to science and there is a another species of viper there protobothrops jordani which um is already quite sort of venomous so people did know to watch out for snakes but lots of them get run over unfortunately um yeah they they recommend putting some signs up yeah being diurnally active is not an advantage when it comes to that sort of stuff no yeah a bit unlucky really mm -hmm. but uh yeah really nice new species um what do we know about their ecology not a lot act like you say diurnal so active in the day generally on sunny days they can be seen by roadsides which is kind of cool they're thought to eat <laughs> that's one of those funny ecology sort of aspects it's like what did they do before the roads then because that just <laughs> means we found several of them by the roadside <laughs> Yeah, literally, it's like, well, you know, you just kind of have to write everything you know, don't you? Yeah, it's well no, no, it's not a criticism of yeah, including it. It's the frog just, descriptions. I think there's probably frog. more to find out, isn't there? <laughs> what, more than hanging around by road, you think, yeah. Ben? I don't know, man. They, they, love, like, lying, they love lying motionless on either side of roads. <laughs> they love being dead on the road. So, um, yeah, they know that they eat, actually, um, some small mammals because somebody saw one do a poo and it had some fur in it and in captivity they apparently will eat on suckling mice makes sense yeah okay that's yeah, yeah. specifically sucklers <laughs> so yeah i think that's about enough said about this brand new species of pit viper which they have named gloideus lateralis have you got any other business i do not no i just yeah I'm all good. Got a couple of little bits. First of all, to say big ups and thank you to our newest patron, Sage Quiggle. So thank you very much, you. Sage. And um, at the beginning of the episode, I said I bumped into Richard Southworth at Venom Day. I was presenting a conference weekend just gone. And um, I had quite a few people come up to me and say that they were podcast listeners. And so some of them said really nice things. And I just wanted to shout out Josh, Ollie and Annie. It was really nice to meet you guys. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool when you meet people who've listened to the podcast and want to chat to you about it. So yeah, thanks Excellent. for coming up and saying hi. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think that's just about it. If you want to become our Patreon yourself, you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. Um, we're on all the social medias. You can find us online. And yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.